Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. December 6, 2020 was Dave Brubeck's centennial. December 4, 2020, I got the opportunity to talk to Dave's son, Chris, about two recently released CDs of his father's music, which are perfect bookends to Dave Brubeck's career. The CD Time Outtakes is a collection of outtakes from Dave's iconic Time Out album, and Lullabies is Dave's last solo recording. Because of COVID restrictions, the many international celebrations around Dave's centennial had to be canceled or postponed, so I was especially pleased to have this opportunity to talk to Chris Brubeck and have our own tribute to his father's remarkable career. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Right off, I want to ask about your brothers, because you were on tour when all everything shut down, and then Darius and Dan got sick, right? Yeah, we were on a tour of England. We did a week at uh, London's most famous and long-running jazz club, Ronnie Scott's. I'm sure a place that you've played. Yes, I love Ronnie's. So we did a week-long run there, and then we did some uh, gigs around England. And just as we were on our way home, um, actually, literally on the way home, on on the plane, Dan had been fine. And then all of a sudden, I could see him during the plane ride just not getting better, you know, or not getting – it just was hitting him. He was fine at first. But it was – Darius lives in England, so he – uh, stayed in England, and um, then I called him up after I got home. Hey, how you doing? You know, now nah, I got a cough a little bit. You know, and to make a long story short, um, my wife and I both had mild cases of COVID, and um, but Dan got really sick and ended up in the hospital, and Darius simultaneously got really sick in England, ended up in the hospital, and they both. When I say really sick, I mean they were both on ventilators for many weeks. So it was very nip and tuck and close. And thank God they both made it. They're on the other side. They're playing again. I mean, when I say playing again, I put that in quotes. Yes, exactly. Even if you never have COVID, you can't play anywhere. Uh, (laughs) But in terms of playing their instruments, uh, Dan even did a videotape with his Vancouver band, you know, to an empty theater for like the sort of British Columbia version of a, a, you know, a PBS kind of broadcast about mm, music yeah, and yeah, honoring yeah. Dave and Iola and guest singers with the, with the, you know, his band and a, a gal singer that was really great. And so they did a great job, but it's very weird to play with no people there. It's you know? very weird. Have you done something like that yourself? Have you done a broadcast in from a theater with nobody there? Yes, I did. But, and even just having the cameraman there feels like, oh, it's a human experience. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. No, I know. I did a little video at the beginning of this, sort of as a joke. And I got all dressed up because it was four days in. I did it on the night I was supposed to open at Dizzy's at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And so I got my dressiest dress. I really did the whole thing. 
But it was funny looking in the mirror. Just I thought, I know that person. I remember you. <laughs> you know, I remember you. <laughs> you're the person who used to walk on stage. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm glad everybody's healthy. I'm glad you're here with me. Oh, Your beautiful yeah, me house. Too. I can see it. It's fabulous. So this is great. We get to talk again. So talk about this. I'm very excited because it's the anniversary coming up. So he's December 6th, right? Yep. Yep. So talk about this, this whole celebration, the CD, and that we're talking about it now. You know, a lot of bad things happened because of COVID, and which wiped out years of planning of really big concerts, like the Hollywood Bowl with Joey DeFrancesca sitting in with my band and Liz Wright, the vocalist, and, you know, these kinds of things, and Royal Albert Hall in London with the King oh. Singers, and, you know, you know, just everything that we had dreamed and planned. And all about this anniversary. All, all to about this, this anniversary. Right. You know, and it's not like, oh, we'll wait till the next one to do this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I hear In yeah. that sense, uh, you know, it's a complete disaster. On the other hand, you're just so glad that my brothers, you know, made it and we're, we'll live and uh, we'll probably play again in a couple of years whenever this thing, uh, you know, we're, if we can vaccinate our way out of it and mm-hmm. people use intelligence to, to do that. That seems to be a possibility. So in the meantime, w- there were several things that happened despite the COVID disaster. Uh, two of nice things were that people wrote books about my father. One, it was a book by a British journalist named uh, Philip Clark, and he wrote a biography. And another fellow named Stephen Christ for Oxford Press wrote a very sort of, you know, scholarly, doctoral kind of thing, all about the recording of Time Out. And both of these authors notified us. They said, you know, in our research, and that included going into the papers of Tio Macero, that kind of research, you know that there's outtakes from Time Out? And I said, no. I actually, I've never heard my dad talk about it. I've never heard any. Isn't that interesting that he never mentioned it either? No, but, you know, and it's weird because we're in the business and you almost always have outtakes, but... You know, I just never thought about it. And and plus, you know, those performances are so iconic. You know, you sort of think of, well, you know, why, why bother, you know? But when they said that, then we were able from archives to get some recordings, um, you know, rough copies of what this stuff sounded like. And um, we were on a tour in England. My brother, Darius, who plays piano, he's our oldest uh, brother. Dan and I usually have our own group, but we go over to England about once a year and tour with Darius and Dave O'Higgins, who's a great British sax player. So we had a day off. We started listening to this. So we're going, oh, my God, this is not just, you know, outtakes. You know, thank God they chose the right ones for a timeout. These are great takes. They're actually, <laughs> in some cases, right away. Like I thought that on Kathy's walls, I said, that's better than what's on timeout. And then I listened to Blue Rondo a la Turk. I'm going, well, that's deeper than what's on timeout. I mean, the very thing that the reason it didn't make it is the reason it's great. Because Dave started playing and his solos, which I think on the original timeout is about four blues choruses. But in this thing, I can hear him. You, if you listen subtly with headphones, you hear him going, mm, mm, mm. Uh... He's, he's in this rutting and grunting mode, you know, which is when, he, <laughs> when I know he's when really When it really deep. happens. Right? Yeah, it's like Errol Garner, right? Yeah. And Uh and it's like really deep and he's playing these choruses and he's taking musical cell fragments from the melody, which most of your listeners when it was and he's going and reharmonizing it. He's integrating architecturally the melody 
in the solos of the blues. Paul's doing a bit of that too. And when you take it in history, they had only been back from that grueling Middle Eastern tour in 58, about, you know, a year. So in Paul's very lyrical playing, there's tons of hints of sort of him hearing Middle Eastern scales and kind of using a goofy tone once in a while. You know, Paul's known for his, you know, beautiful sort of bluebird tone, but he does this wonky, honky stuff sometimes on this record, you know, and it's a, a, that was his salute to the influence of hearing Middle Eastern wind instruments on that tour. Rubeck Quartet on Blue Rondo a la Turk from the new release of outtakes from the iconic Brubeck CD, Time Out. This CD is called Time Outtakes. I'm talking to Dave Brubeck's son, Chris, about the discovery of these tracks, which the family has released to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Dave Brubeck's birth. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. It just kept happening that we kept hearing track after track that was really uh, enticing and excellent. And then we found out that there were two tracks that there were only one take of. So there were no alternate tracks. So then we're going, oh, my gosh, if we wanted to put this out and let the public hear it, we don't want to give them just like a a 30-minute record. That's kind of a ripoff, you know. Then we discovered that not even in the log books, but if you listen to all 11 and a half hours of the sessions that survived, there was a song that was never even written down that existed, which we ended up calling Watusi Jam. Because uh, Paul, and I think Tio, because you can't hear his voice, maybe went out to dinner on the dinner break on the first day. And, and they didn't were come late. back in time. No, and they didn't. <laughs> and, and if you knew Paul, the odds are very good. He may have had an appointment with Mr. Dewers at that point as well. So uh, uh, and anyhow, and I know my dad, even his big work ethic, you know, being a guy who grew up as a cowboy and, you know, working a dollar a day. I know, I know him well enough. And I've been in the studio with him. He'd be like, I'm getting charged for this studio time. And Paul's missing. Well, what the hell? As long as the um, as the wheels are spending on the dollars, you know, I, I'm going to get. So Joe and Gene, come here. And then they started jamming, and they recorded this jam, which is related to Watusi drums, but not exactly because that ended up being a shuffle, uh, like a real Kansas City kind of shuffle. And they did this jam, which I think is great, and had a great drum solo. Now at that point, you got to know the history of the group to know that even though Paul was responsible for telling Dave about Joe Morello and how great he was, because he heard Joe playing with Mary McPartland with brushes all night. So when, uh, and he, you know, Joe swings his ass off. But when when Dave approached him about maybe joining the group, and Joe said, I'm not going to join your group unless I get featured. 
And uh, so the first night that he joined the group and got featured, people went nuts. And Paul did not <laughs> like that. And they, they were soon going, not before this session, but the, they were soon going in the studio. And Paul literally said to Dave, if he goes into the studio for these recording sessions, then I'm not coming. Really? And it was like that- Clint Eastwood and some other bad guy on the street yeah. squinting at each other. And they said, Paul, we've been working together for years. I know this guy is going to be great for the group. So don't show up. You don't show up. But I want Joe to be there. And like he didn't give in, Paul showed up. I can't remember exactly which record that was for. But but anyhow, so Dave was probably thinking with that political background, hey, you know, Paul's not even here. Let's jam on something and give Joe a big drum solo. Because <laughs> at that point, they didn't know Take 5 was going to be a big deal and a drum solo. So they went for it. So this is a great discovery. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with composer, multi-instrumentalist, Chris Brubeck, about the release of Time Outtakes, newly discovered outtakes from his father Dave's Time Out recording. What I love about you, well, what I love about this whole project, but also the things that you're saying, and in the wonderful liner notes you talk about this, is that it gives real insight into how these things evolve. And your story right now even talks about how a band evolves because something that can seem like, no, these two people don't want to do this or it isn't going to work out. Your father was the right matchmaker and politician to make it work. And then this fantastic genius happened. And I think the biggest example of that is actually take five. Um, and at one point we were laughing because there's 45 minutes of aborted attempts to play take five correctly. And it's great to hear the personalities and the little talk between takes and stuff about how they're ribbing each other and supporting each other. But um, but it took them for, they, they really had trouble with the 5-4 making this sound yeah. right. And, and Dan, and Dan and I were like high-fiving each other. We're going like, oh my God, we thought that those guys never made mistakes. They're just like us. They go into the studio and they have to do multiple takes. It was a great albatross lifted from our... <laughs> from everybody, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's... I, I was thinking, too, that thinking about outtakes, because anybody who's recorded, you get to where almost your ears start hearing things differently. I have some outtakes that I've heard of things that I was I didn't even want to put on the CD and or the album back then. And then years later, somebody talked about this thing. And it winds up, I had a record company put out something that I, they had promised they would never do. I said, this is an outtake, never to be heard, et cetera, et cetera. Then they put it out and I loved it. It's one of the favorite things I've ever done because now this many years later, I hear it and I like it. Yeah. Because we hear it differently too, yeah. which I think is something. Yeah, we definitely do. And, you know, it's interesting on take five, like if someone says to me, I like the take five that's on timeout better. 
that that doesn't make me go, oh no, you shouldn't. You know, I can see why they do, but it's really interesting because if you ask any jazz drummer, I think even if they'd never heard Take Five before, which is literally impossible if you're a jazz drummer, <laughs> and you said, how would you approach playing a song in five four? Uh, anyone would go. Jing, 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 one, two, three, four, five. It's the most obvious thing in the world. But that's not how Joe was approaching it at all. He was playing such a crazy, syncopated, offbeat Latin rhythm that he couldn't remember how to play it. There's a little (laughs) snitch of that. You know, we've got a whole kind of uh, thing that I didn't even put on the record, you know, where, where Joe's trying to get his limbs coordinated to play this offbeat thing. You know, what hand went down first and the rim shot and the bell, the symbol. And then there's a little snitch of it that's on the, the banter cut of, of the record where you're, you, uh, Paul's going like, uh, I'm going to order coffee down here, Joe. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, sort of sardonically, you know, we're waiting for you and I'll get it, I'll get it. You know, it's like. Uh, well, but it shows what really goes into this. And and it is funny. I love the banter that you put on that because at one point Dave says something about, is it in strange Strange metal mark, I think, when he plays that run, and then they have to do something else. And he goes, I can't do it that well again. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> I got mine. Why did the rest of the band come in and do it right? You know, or something like that. No, it's delightful. And you get the whole energy of the session. One thing that's, that's really nice, for example, like I don't know, you know, if the jazz history police would want to arrest me for this because I had heard Dave talk about that the timeout introduction that that's on the official famous record of strange metal art. I have heard him say, Oh, I played it better once, but it didn't end up on the record. So we found that better intro. They didn't use it because Paul, you know, who I rarely heard do this blatantly screwed up. He got lost when he came in, you know, the whole intro is about two minutes of just solo piano. Yeah. So I'm going like, well, I'm a modern swinging crazy guy. How about we take Dave's favorite intro? And and Dave always said this. It's a splicing. It came from his veterinarian cowboy days. And marry it up. <laughs> you know, say, let's marry it up with, with Paul's best solo. And then you never heard. And that's a wonderful solo by Paul, where which um, – uh, which reminds me of another thing, because you can hear him say, you can hear him play a quote from Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, it, and which was making fun of himself for having got lost the last time, because he was bewildered. I mean, that's the kind of <laughs> language that the, those guys spoke.
thing I was thinking about with this, because you're always thinking of the different time signatures and things, that this is a group that was hugely commercially popular, and they made this difficult music. I, I hate to even call it that, but these unusual time signatures, I'd rather say it that way, something that we're not used to hearing all the time as Americans. And because uh, we, for our listeners who aren't musicians, we're used to, you know, three, four, or four, four, that's the basic kind of approach. And that they, they had people who'd listen to this so much that they could sing this and not even know or hum or whatever, and not even know that it's, quote, difficult. When I think of how unsophisticated, musically unsophisticated, most popular music is today, and I think that this was popular music, it really speaks to something. I think that's fascinating, that if it is presented well, and something I've always picked up on your dad, any interview I ever heard, and certainly from, uh, I've only met two of you, you and Darius, but I pick up that same beautiful vibe of there's a complete unpretentiousness. And I'm thinking for somebody, your father, who was so successful, something I'd like to celebrate on his 100th birthday that impresses me is this complex, very sophisticated music approached with just a beautiful wonder and a certain kind of innocence that's lovely and no pretension. It's just, isn't this fun? Da 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 You know, yeah. just everybody join in. And it's really lovely and I think speaks to his personality that yeah. he would approach it that way. Don't you think? I mean, yeah. speak to that. I think it does. Well, one of the things that's very confusing about my father's career and biography, if you get into it, and of course I know what, better than most people on the planet is that you might go far as enough to hear that, Oh, his mother was a classically trained pianist. He's a classical pianist. Superficially. Then you say, ah, he's like Andre Previn, mm. you know, who was a wonderful classical pianist, classically trained, who branched out to include jazz. But Dave was never that guy. He had dyslexia so bad as a kid that he wasn't a good classical pianist. He heard classical music all the time. So part of that unpretentious uh, attitude that you pick up on Mm. is that he was an ear player. He appreciated all kinds of music. Mm. But, you know, he didn't even graduate from college as a music major. He went as a veterinarian major to please his father, who was a cowboy, because he wanted one of his sons to do something useful, like, you know, help... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Help pull breached calves out of cattle, you know. I mean, that's- no, but I but I've heard Dave in interviews. In fact, uh, just coincidentally, right before you and I got together, Terry Gross, they were playing an interview that she did with Dave, and he was saying how much he liked being a cowboy, right. You know, so that was part of it. I mean, he certainly went into the vet and then realized uh, that was not for me. I'm going to be a musician, but there's a lovely. Uh, I've had this conversation with a number of friends who are musicians that the musicians very often that we enjoy hanging out with the most are ones that have a broader uh, range of interests. They weren't just going to Juilliard from the time they were three and then they graduated and they went off and had a career. I mean, I love that Dave was a cowboy. You know, I told you I'm wearing my cowboy scarf today in honor of Dave. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that it's a broader outlook, a broader view of things. Yeah. At least that's how I take it. 
No, I think that's really true. And and I know my dad, you know, when we go on these trips, uh, I was on the road a lot with him. Some of his favorite people to see were the sky caps. You know, a lot of Arrest times. my case. There you, know, you go. A yeah. lot of times they were musicians, too. Like they'd be, yeah. you know, playing bass at night in some club and, you know, probably making 50 bucks a night. Hey, Dave, how are you doing, man? But, you know, it's like. Um, some of his best friends were the most quote unquote, you know, common kind of yeah. people. And yeah. that's where he just felt, you know, really at home. And the, and the cowboys he grew up with, when you think of cowboys, uh, you know, I don't know what you think of Kevin Costner and Yellowstone or something, but you know, a lot of times there were like Portuguese guys and it was just a real melting pot of people that stayed in the cowboy life. Dave Brubeck Quartet on Tangerine. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway and Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. 
Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations. So please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. No gift is too small. And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. Today we're celebrating Dave Brubeck's centennial with a conversation with his son, composer and multi-instrumentalist Chris Brubeck. You have to talk about this because it's in the liner notes, and I loved it as a story on its own, but also personally because I've experienced this sort of thing. And I will preface it with, in early my career, my early 20s, I remember a musician saying to me, somebody came up and said, oh, I love music. And he said, yeah. he goes, I said, and he, this other guy on the bandstand said, oh, you're a jazz fan. And he goes, oh, yes, I'm a huge jazz fan. He goes, what what records do you have? And the guy said, oh, I like everything. And he kept being very general. You know, there wasn't anything specific. And that always is a tell for us as professionals with some, oh, I just like everything. Well, they're never really huge music fans. Well, Dave meeting Clinton, President Clinton. <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm leading to, because I read that. I actually spit out my coffee this morning <laughs> reading that because I dug it so much with the people who, because I once said to some musician who was saying something to me and he was going to sit in on something. I said, well, we'll take it from the bridge. And he said, what's a bridge? <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the captain is on a ship. Yeah, that's <laughs> <You know? laughs> or something a dentist puts in. Exactly. No, you have to tell this because I think it's just the whole approach of him coming up and then how Dave comes back and says, hum the bridge. It's just the best. So tell this story. I love this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, the story is presented by uh, my friend Douglas Brinkley, the author and historian, who, independent of us, got this story from hanging out with Bill Clinton. Maybe he's working on a book with him or something. I, I don't know what the occasion was, but it was after he was out of office. Um, and when uh, Dave got the Kennedy Center Award, I, I heard Bill Clinton telling this story. You can you find a video of him personally telling this story. <laughs> but I also know that at one point I witnessed uh, this. It could have sort of happened twice. Okay. Uh, once in him retelling. But the time that I witnessed was there was a governor's conference and Bill Clinton was a young governor, not president yet. And I think... Reagan was president at that point, and we were playing at the White House. And he came up to us, you know, after we had played, and he says, you know, golly, Mr. Brubeck, I just want to say that I was a kid, you know, I, I figured out a way to go see one of your concerts, and it was the best thing I ever heard in my life. And I went home, and I tried to play Take Five. I played Take Five until my lips bled. I just love that music so much, you know, and it's like, and, you know, he, he went, he was gushing, you know. And uh, uh, I remember this so well because my father was always so sweet to everyone. But for one of the few times in my life, I saw him sort of challenged, you know. And, and so <laughs> so he said, you really like my music? Oh, yes, Mr. Rubik, I, I love your music. And that challenge one. Well, if that's the case, um, what would you say uh, your favorite tune of mine is? So right there, you lose most people. Right. <laughs> And so he says, well, you know, a lot of people will talk about uh, Take Five, but tell you the truth, my favorite tune of yours is Blue Rondo a la Turk. So it was like past 
level number one, Mr. Miyagi. Exactly. You know, it's like, exactly. I said, oh, that's good. He said, he said, you know that too? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, I got to, you know, that 9-8 is so catchy. We're going like, wow, this, this governor, he actually knows a different tune. He knows 9-8. And so he said, yeah, I just love that. Da, 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 da. He's singing it, you know, in 9-8. He's rolling off a song. We're going, God, this is kind of impressive, you know. Maybe this isn't one of those senators that's in a barbershop quartet or whatever the hell, you know, you hear about occasionally. And believe me, that these days in politics, that would be like a choir of angels, you know. Exactly, if, if, exactly. If someone could sing Sweet out of line with a couple of Democratic Republican senators, they should Wouldn't be on the be cover sweet? of Time magazine. Exactly. So anyhow, so... So Dave says, so you really like Blue Rondo? Yes, sir, I love that too. Well, hum the bridge for me. That's fantastic. And Clinton goes, Oh, it's so great. And even when Clinton tells the story, he says, I know when he met me, he just thought I was another politician filled with hot air. <laughs> it's just so perfect because you know these people, and they have to because they meet so many people. Somebody hands in a memo and says, famous jazz musician right. wrote in funny time signatures. Right. You know, And then they come up and they act like they know what's going on. But that's just so great. Yeah, yeah. Hum the bridge. Right, right. <laughs> so th- thank God Bill Clinton never met Buddy Rich. It was a fan of his. <laughs> But but in any case, the sweet punchline of this story is that the second time we went back to the White House and and Clinton was there and was president, Dave was prepared and he had a gift for him, which was Blue Rondo a la Turk as a lithograph framed. And so Bill was thrilled that Dave would remember this meeting and the story and the tune that he loved. And, and Clinton says, you know, that he hung it up in the Oval Office the whole time he was president. And now it's in his library at home in Chappaqua, New York, where he lives. Quartet recorded live at Carnegie Hall on Brubeck's composition, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Bill Clinton was a Dave Brubeck fan, and when Clinton told Dave that Blue Rondo a la Turk was his favorite recording, Brubeck memorably replied, Really? Hum the bridge. And after my father died, you know, my brother Dan was at our house in Connecticut, our family house, and the phone rang. And, uh, hello, is Mrs. Brubeck there? And, um, and Dan said, yeah, yeah, who's calling? Bill Clinton. Yeah, right. You know, but it really was Bill Clinton. <laughs> just calling and then the he bee- hummed the bridge on <laughs> <Right>. Rondo. 
<laughs> he was just being a sweet guy. He wanted oh. to tell my mom how much Dave meant to him and how sorry oh, he was for her. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. That is wonderful. And you have another quote since we're talking about presidents. Let me bring this one up, too, because I like this. It's, you can't understand America without understanding jazz, and you can't understand jazz without understanding Dave Brubeck, President Obama. Yeah. So that's really lovely. I, that's nice that you put this on with that wonderful picture of Dave yeah. on the back. Yes, I'm prepared. I'm showing you the cover. We're oh, on radio. Yeah. No one can see I'm doing this. But I love that. That's a very, that was really nice quote as and, well. And, and there's a real interesting backstory to that, too. Dave was getting older and older. I think he finally got the Kennedy Center honors when he was like 89 or 90. Yeah. You don't get it posthumously. Yeah. So I was going like, well, what are, they, what are you waiting what, what, for? You're right. You know, how much longer are you going to wait until <laughs> he's got you know banana peels all over the grave and oh. tap dancing on marbles? Or, you know, what the? <laughs> so, but because of Dave's record uh, on civil rights and everything he fought for and stood for, it was so worth waiting for for it to be when Obama was president. Oh, yeah, the, Tish and I, my wife, were with Dave and Iola the night that Obama got elected, and you know that was to them such a, a massive achievement. From you know going all the way back to World War II in terms yeah. of the situation they've been in, what they've been fighting for in terms of human rights and civil exactly. rights, especially in America. But the crazy thing is that um, Obama was very, very nice. And he came uh, backstage in intermission from this crazy Kennedy Center show. And he told us, you know, that he really wanted to say hi to us all. Um, But in his very first book, which I think is called Dreams of My Father, he he writes in that book about how his father, who he almost barely knew, like, you know, like maybe two weeks to a month out of his life, he ever spent time with his dad, uh, young Barry Obama was at the Punahou School living in Hawaii, and his father wanted to do something with his son that he thought might help them bond. So he took him to a concert with the Honolulu Symphony, and the Honolulu Symphony guest artists were Dave Brubeck and his sons playing together with the Honolulu oh. Symphony. So he talks about that was his introduction to jazz, and he's been a jazz fan ever since. So oh, that's there's so a real beautiful. full circle for Oh, yeah. For Talk Dave. about karma, right? Yeah, right. It's, you know, if you live long enough, uh, there's a lot of miserable things in life. But these big, giant circles coming around like that. I agree. Over. I agree. I've, I've really felt that more times that people will say things come. They want it to come around in a week, you know, if it'll be something. And it doesn't. But I've really seen that as I've lived longer, that things and I'll think, well, I guess that's never going to come around. And then it does, but it might be five years later or something or longer. Or 40 or 50, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
Dave Brubeck from his CD Lullabies. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is Dave's son, multi-instrumentalist Chris Brubeck. So it was a wonderful coincidence that at the same time that you and I were talking about this CD of doing time outtakes, that in the mail came Lullabies, which I was so moved by, Chris. It's just, I don't even know how to say this. You know, I hear a lot of CDs now, more than the normal person, because people send me things about being on the show, and my ears just wear out, because I'm trying to be fair, I'm trying to listen to everything, and I just listened to something that, you know, yet another CD where people are just, let's give them everything, and they're pounding away, and there's a million notes, and I'm just enervated by it. And then I put on this beautiful CD of solo piano, and it's the last solo recording Dave did, correct? Correct. Yeah. And it's lullabies, and it's so beautiful. And again, it speaks to this thing I love about Dave that I never knew him. So of course, I'm inferring this and speculating, but this personality really comes through because it's so gentle and, again, unpretentious but at the same time, so sophisticated. So it's the perfect marriage of those things. So talk about this CD. It's really beautiful. I love it. Um, well, it started out that that Dave was thinking for the sake of grandchildren, you know, people or maybe some friends' kids. And um, his uh, manager and producer at the time, uh, Russell Gloyd, was really into the idea. And they actually... Uh, went into the studio and Dave said, now when I do this, I'm not going to do multiple takes of anything. I just want to just do it. The other thing that helped uh, in the genesis of this was that Dave got to this beautiful point, which I hope all musicians will have, but I'm savvy enough to know most won't, which is like you're in your 80s and you walk out on stage and you get a standing ovation just for still being alive and still making music and thank you for all the years you've given us. Yeah. And I've heard this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. People say, when he walked out on stage, he moved so slow that we thought like, oh, boy, maybe we shouldn't have paid our money to go see this guy because he looks mighty old. And then he would sit down. And even Herbie Hancock talked about this at the Kennedy Center thing. He starts playing and decades melt away. You know, it's just incredible how much younger he would get. Yeah. So um, Dave wanted to, to do this recording because it started being that at the end of a concert, he'd get four or five encores and he really was like, physically, I'm too tired to play anymore. Yeah. What's a way to sweetly let everyone know this is over. <laughs> Please don't give me another encore. <laughs> I love it. So he me. started playing. An affectionate little lullaby. Everyone yeah. go up. So that was like, well, what if you did, you know, maybe, you know, 12 or 15 more of those kinds of things. And then, um, so that was the genesis of uh, Powell Lullaby. That's so interesting how that came about. Yeah, yeah. And then I know how my dad's brains work. He said, well, this is supposed to be a sleep-themed record, calm, relaxing. Then he goes like, 
Sleepy Time Down South. When is Sleepy Time Down South? That makes sense. I mean, he's just connecting the title. Which I loved. I have to tell you, the Sleepy Time Down South, he really gets his Errol Garner on. Oh, my and God. That was, <laughs> doesn't he? It's I mean, it's just beautiful. A, and I've always loved that song anyway. But then, you know, you just think he's going in one direction. It's sneaky, this CD. It is. You know, because he goes in that and with all the beautiful voicings and you're you're just kind of drifting and it's you, you're, you're getting off on the Sleepy Time Down South. And then he goes into kind of an Errol Garner thing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? No, it's just, it's so beautiful. And then there's things you discover, like, you know, I saw, okay, Dave recorded Danny Boy. And I think like, oh, man, Danny Boy. It's like, why don't you pick a tune that's been done to death? And yet he found a way to play it beautifully. You know, it's funny, Chris, that you say this, because the two tunes that I wrote down that I wanted to talk about specifically were Sleepy Time Down South and Danny Boy. Ah, it's true. And I, I mean, I, you, you could look at my notes and it says Danny Boy cliche, and, but it's not at all. You know, I've done, I've done concerts and I know you've done jazz cruises, things like that on, on cruise. They will actually put out 
to all the entertainers that they cannot do Danny Boy because it's so overdone. Wow. So they'll say, so I mean, it's that big of a cliche and he makes it fresh like it was written yesterday. It's mm -hmm. so beautiful. And I did. I mean, so you mentioning that it's just gorgeous and it makes you listen to it in a different way. You yeah. don't care that it's been recorded a lot of times. No, it's beautiful. Yeah, and it, and it's the way that if you're really a great musician, and I dare say if you're an accomplished enough musician to perceive it, you were talking about all the artists you get where it's a million notes a second, you know, yeah. proves they have good technique. But, like, uh, one of the things, I mean, switching pages here to a, a great jazz organist, Dr. Lonnie Smith. Oh, yeah. I have never heard anyone use better emptiness yeah. and space when he plays live. It just kills me, you know, and I realize that that's what it is. It's not, you know, it's not what he plays when he plays. It's what he doesn't play when he doesn't play. Exactly. That's, that's really mystical, you know. <laughs> it's a power he has. And in that, in that same way, um, you know, Dave, just in Danny Boy, just is always the little extra space, you know, and maybe it's because he's older and wiser. Or maybe it's even that, you know, his brain signals aren't what they used to be as, a, as when he was 30 or 40 or 50. But there's this extra little time in between this note or that note, which just makes each note m more sweet uh, and, and thoughtful. And, and when you feel like he's building up, like if I were orchestrating it, ah, oh, here comes the double forte part. Da, 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 da. It's da, da, da. And then it's like really soft. Oh, it's and no, it it's, kills you because it's just so beautiful. No, I teared up, and I what how I took it was not his age, but was the the long life and his beautiful children and grandchildren. Because I think because my mother played piano, and I remember going to sleep with her playing, and that and he mentions his mother playing when he was in utero you know for her kids and my mom did that uh -huh. and i was thinking that that he was playing for all of his children all of everyone's children yeah it was just so beautiful and if you're doing that and for all and the child that's still in all of us hopefully then if you're doing that you're not going to do a big crescendo like that and, and, and you're going to go to the more tender spot. yeah and it's really obvious, but I, I must admit, until this second, I never thought of it. Maybe he was thinking about my brother Dan when he was playing Danny Boy, you know? Yeah. His, exactly. his son, you know? Exactly. So, no, it's, it's really beautiful.
So at the end of Vanity Fair, they have what they call the Proust questionnaire. And they, if you know, if you come back as a, what would you come back as a vegetable or, you know, it's got all these different, <laughs> these different things. And Dave did it. And the question that they usually ask is, how would you like to die? Do you know what Dave said? Uh, I got to ask Darius this because Darius and I, did I tell you we did a concert together in, uh, in Scotland that yeah. I didn't even know I got, that's where I met him because he was on the bill and I was on the bill. How and, long ago was that? Oh, I'm guessing five years ago, maybe. Oh, good. So it's yeah. fairly recently. Yeah, fairly recently. Yeah. But anyway, so because I said it to him and he now this is sibling competition because he knew the answer. So what did Dave say he wanted to be doing? How did he want to die? Um, playing on stage? Playing stride piano. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your specialty. <laughs> Isn't that great? But it's such a perfect thing because what's more joyous than stride piano? And I just loved it when I read that because I was reading all the stuff that he was saying and then it said, how do you, how would you like to die? And he said, playing stride piano. <laughs> Yay, Dave. <laughs> That's great. Oh, Chris, it's so great to see you again. I feel like we're in the same room, even though we're not. Yeah, it works so pretty good. It does work pretty good. And so thank you so much. Wonderful to see you. Thank you for doing this. And these CDs, they are their wonderful bookends. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you about it. Well, and it's my extreme pleasure. We had such a good time. First time around, I, I want to see if we could do it again. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Chris Brubeck. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another celebrated creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms or at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons and Jazz Times. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. For more information, visit judycarmichael.com or jazzinspired.com. <laughs>